Welcome to the Not Unreasonable podcast, hosted by me, David Wright. This is a show of interviews with people who have something to teach us about managing our businesses and ourselves. There's a lot to learn out there, folks, so let's get to work. My guest today is Danny Hudgenowski, SVP for TransRe. He runs our DNO, ENO, Cyber, Treaty, and FAC departments in the U.S. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So I want to start, I like thinking about claims when I trying to learn about coverages. So maybe you could tell us about your favorite or most instructive claim story. Yeah, sure. Well, I would say the one that I probably learned the most from was back in my facultative days here at TransRe. So we're going back to probably 2007, 2008, right leading up into the financial crisis. Uh, it was E-Trade Financial. They had a nasty DNO claim. It was a renewal of ours. Um, and the writing was on the wall that we were heading into a financial crisis. Uh, I thought about getting off of it multiple times. It was with a client, though, that we did a lot of business with. And I ended up staying with it. Ended up, it was my first $2.5 million claim, which was the most we were putting up back then. Uh, it was the biggest claim I had ever written to date at that point. And everything in my instinct told me I should probably not be doing this account. We're headed into a financial crisis, and these guys, some of the stuff that I was reading in their 10Ks, the 10Qs, they were giving out loans for yachts, loans for yachts heading into a financial crisis. What could go wrong, right? But, uh, you know, like I said, it was with a seeding company we did a fair amount of business with. Reality is, keeping a relationship in mind, I probably should have paired it back to maybe a million and a quarter, cut the line in half, did something like that. But I stayed with the two and a half million, and I'll tell you, within Four months of writing it, claim was in. There was concern that E-Trade wouldn't even exist anymore, potential bankruptcy. Claim came in, and that claim was paid. I like to say there's typically on public DNO a five- to seven-year tail. We had a reserve up on that one within a year and a half. So I would say it was one of the worst ones I've wrote, but, but I learned from it. You know, I, What I really learned was you got to trust your instinct when you're underwriting, and you need to be willing to have that tough conversation with your clients and say, look, I, I get it, I get the overall relationship, but to some extent, I can't go down this road with you, and I should have been more constructive in working out a way to go forward with that. What, what did they do wrong? They call, it was a DNO claim? It was a DNO claim, right. So just because they were over-leveraging themselves, E-Trade was doing loans. I mean, like I said, they were loaning people money for yachts, but they were also letting people leverage their own accounts internally uh, for their trading. They were into the mortgage business, heading into the financial crisis. So when everything blew up, their stock—I uh, don't remember exactly where it was trading, but it fell to you know pennies. And all the investors came in, filed a suit, and next thing you know, it was a limit loss. So that was investors alleging that management did what? Uh, investors alleging mismanagement by the directors and officers, saying that you should have had better foresight, you should have hedged yourselves better, you shouldn't have made so many loans to people who couldn't afford to pay them back, which in hindsight makes a lot of sense. But if you look at it, just about every bank back then was doing the same thing. They fell into the same trap, and that's why we had some serious losses in that 08-09 block in the DNO world. So there's a... A question in this business. This is a securities class action lawsuit. Is that what that was? Correct. That's right. a security class action lawsuit. So, so this is where the the investors, the irony behind in these things are investors are owners of the company, and they're suing the company that they own to get money from the company. 
um, that they own. <laughs> well, they're, well, they're getting the money from the insurance of the company. And yes. And typically, it's not the investors who are getting the money on the tail end. It's the lawyers. Yes. Okay. So what is, what's right here? I mean, the DNO world works a certain way, right? And we have this pattern of behavior, which has gone on for a long time, of when a company's stock goes down, they get a class action lawsuit filed against them. It's some kind of securities fraud, I guess. Um, is that what it is? Uh, what, what, like, what's the, what's the wrongdoing? And, and is it, do you think it's right? Well, the, yeah, so I'll take the wrongdoing first. The wrongdoing these days, it could typically be anything. I read Matt Levine a lot. He writes on Bloomberg. And he coined the, t the phrase, everything in securities fraud. It seems yes. like these days, almost everything is securities fraud. If you look back historically, we used to have about, you know, 150 to maybe 200 security class actions in a year. If you look at the 16 to 19 block, we were having almost 300 cases a year, excluding any sort of merger objection or noise around it. Um, and it really became anything with securities fraud. Boeing had planes crash as well. That's securities fraud, too. Peloton had a treadmill that a baby climbed on and was injured. Well, the stock goes down the next day, that's securities fraud. So it, you have a cyber breach, that's securities fraud. So the plaintiff's bar really got into anything that happened that had an adverse effect on a company, they were filing a security class action lawsuit and seeing what stuck to mm -hmm. the wall. Now, is it right? Some cases, yes, some cases, no. If there's gross mismanagement, things like that, then yes, it, it, it's, it's right, and they should be held accountable, and that's why our insurance product does exist in, in the DNO world. But there is definitely some excess that's going on right now and has been going on for the past number of years with overzealous plaintiff attorneys coming after just everything and seeing what they could get to stick. So they're violating their duty of care as officers of the company of some kind? Correct, yes. You have the duty of care and fair representation to your shareholders. Okay. So they're violating, they are allegedly violating that. Right, right. And and one of the things that Levine says, I read him a lot too, is he says, you're allowed to screw up. You just have to tell us, the shareholders, when you screw up <laughs> while you're doing it. Correct. And you know what? <laughs> if that's the case, then if... Things are disclosed properly, then you shouldn't have a claim. But yeah. it's it's really it really comes down to those disclosures. When those disclosures aren't proper, that that's when you run into problems. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank is a perfect example. No one, you know, go back two months. No one thought that they could potentially be going out of business, but they were. They just weren't lining up their assets and liabilities correctly. There was no way to tell from their financial statements that that was going on. Interest rates went up. That's a legitimate DNO suit in my mind. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I probably agree with you there in that I never looked for a second at Silicon Valley Bank or thought about it before a month ago, right? And then suddenly spent a lot of time thinking about it. And the, the revisionist history, anyway, that I read says, oh, well, they should have known all along because they're just, you know, way out of whack on their interest rate risk. Was that something that was clear in advance that this was something that was going wrong to you? To me, that would have been really tough. And if you look, I mean, I, I, just about the entire industry was on that. You had some of the smartest FI underwriters out there who looked at that bank a year ago and thought everything was fine. Uh, I think a lot of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, you had the depositors, a very concentrated group, most of them venture capitalist-backed companies, private equity-backed companies. And in today's day and age, you know, it was a traditional run on the bank. Back yeah. in the day, a run on the bank, you need to go line up, get your money out. Now you push a button, the money's gone, yeah. and you could pull it out within a day. So 
Silicon Valley had a traditional run on the bank. Yes, they did not match up their assets and liabilities the way they should. But at the end of the day, their downfall was a traditional run on the bank. Mm. And is this going to change how you look at other financial institutions? Like, what are the lessons learned from this for you as an underwriter? Yeah, the lessons learned are, as a reinsurer, we're supporting the people who are doing this. So we're talking to all of our clients right now, all the insurance companies and their FI underwriters about what they're doing. And really what, what we're hearing out of them, everyone's asking a lot more questions. Who is your customer base? Are they all owned by the same venture capitalist companies? How many are above the FDIC $250,000 limit? How are we hedging our interest rate risk? So I would say that the market has very quickly figured out what went wrong and is now underwriting to that risk. The interesting thing though, you know, you write a DNO policy, it's a year long policy. There are a lot of other regional banks who could potentially be in trouble who you have policies in force. So there's nothing you can do until that policy comes up for renewal. Yeah. Yeah. And First First Republic, we're recording this on May 1st, I think. Is that right? Yes. Today is May 1st, and yes. So First Republic uh, was seized this past weekend? Uh, they're going to J.P. Morgan. Okay. So, yes, there there's already a security class action lawsuit in okay. on them. Yeah. And the reality is... The depositors are going to be fine, which is the most important thing. But the shareholders and bondholders of First Republic, they are being gone. close to wiped out. They're done, and they will be filing suits against the DNO policy to recover that money. And what will will it work, you think? I mean, I guess you're, you don't want to talk against your book here. I, I don't want to talk against my book, but when you have something of this magnitude... It's hard to see your way out of it. It's hard to see your way out of it. Just the headline risk alone with all these banks that were seized, uh, I, I think that they're more likely than not going to have some sort of settlement. So what, hap- what would happen if they didn't buy DNO? Well, the directors and officers would be on the hook themselves for any potential. Do you think that would really happen? Would they go after individuals? You know, I've seen it happen once or twice in my career. I mean, I've been doing this over 20 years. Enron, they went after some individuals. Yeah. Uh, WorldCom, yeah. y- y- if you think back to the early- and they had DNO. And they had DNO, but they blew out the top of it. Oh, okay. And in some cases, there was just such egregious behavior when it came to an Enron or WorldCom, right? Where there was no DNO coverage for some particular individuals. There was coverage for the entity, coverage for the outside directors, but in some cases, if there's just blatant fraud, things like that, you would be able to go directly after the director themselves. Because there's a theory out there, which I don't know how much I believe it. It's not zero. I believe some of it. Uh, which is that insurance kind of creates its own outcome, right? So by the fact that you have insurance and that you're not actually harming anybody, quote unquote, uh, it's, you know, the plaintiff attorneys are like, well, let's just go take the money. It's just sitting there waiting for us. Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm probably with you on that. I believe some of it. I don't believe all of it. But look, there's deep pockets in, at the insurance level. Um, yeah. You know, if you're a plaintiff lawyer and you say, all right, well, I know that this company buys a $500 million tower, it's a lot easier to go after that $500 million insurance tower versus trying to seize a CEO's house. Yeah, right. Right. I mean, you got a person there, and that's yeah. just, a, let's say, the faceless financial institution, right? I mean, in the end, uh, people are a little less sympathetic. I mean, they're not like they're massively sympathetic to the very rich CEO of a comfortable company. company. Um, so, if you, on the current kind of levels of insurance, if you sort of reduced all the insurance available by 50%, let's say, um, do you think that claims would claim costs would go down? No, I, I, I don't 
I don't think so. I, I think you would almost need to reduce it considerably more than that to get claim costs down. Right. I, I think, you know, just the plaintiff's bar has made such a good living off of pursuing D&O claims yeah. that, that the, the genie's out of the bottle. I don't see that stopping anytime soon. I, I know you, you're uh, focused entirely on the U.S. markets, but I'll ask you an unfair question then. Does this exist anywhere else in the world? A little bit in Australia we're seeing it. They're starting to pull together some security class actions. We have seen some collective actions out of London, th things like that. But on the level that it exists, nowhere is anywhere near the U.S. So what's the, what's the alternative legal theory for wrongdoing there in those, other, in those other jurisdictions? I mean, there's stock markets all over the world, right? So if a company, just their stock drops because of some poor decision-making by the directors and officers, Shareholders are like, well, I guess we lost that one. Yeah, I think you're talking more about a cultural issue here versus a specific DNO issue. Yeah. Because if you look at GL losses, if you look at auto losses, umbrella losses, we are much more litigious here in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world. And I think that's what's driving it. It's not DNO specific, but I think that's fair across all lines where the U.S., you're just getting higher settlement after higher settlement. Right, so we want to blame somebody else and take their money. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> right. Well, that's a great way to distill it down simply. Uh, it's, do you get a sense for whether other countries are, I don't know, like I'm just trying to think of like what the balance of what's missing there, right? Is, is, it, is it just a cultural thing that the lawyer's not there or they're just not as powerful or... You know, like, uh, are there other clues we can look for that, that are sort of similar to this? I, I mean, I think it's just pure litigation reform and the way that our court systems work and the awards that have been granted here. I, I, I think once you start down that road, it's very hard to reverse it. Other countries have never really started down that road of having formal class actions. Um, even on individual actions here, it's, you know, people talk about social inflation all the time. You could argue how relevant it is in professional lines, but we see it all the time on our traditional casualty book. You, know, you have an auto accident, next thing you know, you know, million-dollar claim, and next thing you know, there's some sort of ECO claim that runs for $10, $20 million that, that's hitting on there. And, I mean, some of these claims, they're absolutely horrific. Uh, MedMal as well, some of these claims are horrific, but they're paying out, you know, tens of sometimes even hundreds of millions of dollars so i think we've gone down a road and i mean the only way to really walk that back is complete litigation reform and i don't think with our political system that we have right now that that's really at the top of anyone's mind mm. uh is there dno in crypto uh there is dno for crypto you know it, it it's funny it's it's very tough to cover that um one of our standard exclusions on our treaty is typically cannabis and crypto. Um, there are some companies out there who do write crypto. We, we do pick up a small amount. Here at Transry, we're trying to be very careful with it, but there is a, an emerging market for crypto DNO coverage. And crypto's here. It's here to stay, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether you think it's real or you think it's fake. It's going to be here for a while. And there are people sitting on the boards of these companies. They need coverage. So the market's responding to that. And w what are the companies? This would be the company that's issuing the token? Uh, the company issuing the token, uh, you know, 
FTX had a DNO tower. FTX right. obviously collapsed. They they had a small DNO tower, but the towers on the crypto side they're nowhere near what they are in traditional DNO because capacity is so scarce. Whereas you might have a five hundred million dollar tower for a decent sized company, a traditional bank or someone like that. For a crypto company, if you could cobble together $10, $20 million worth of capacity, that's a lot for one of those companies. So we maybe are going through a natural experiment where we can test our little theory of if you dramatically reduce the DNO limits available, what would happen to the claims? You know what? We might see that FTX might be the canary in the coal mine for that. Right. And so they're definitely going to be having a DNO loss. They, they are definitely having a DNO loss, and they have nowhere near the tower that some of these other banks that we talked about have. Any other losses or, or you know claims notices on those that you're aware of? On the crypto side, yeah. no, not not much. But really? again, we, we we don't do much in that space, so right. I'm probably not the best person to go through that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I have to think that you'd be watching it pretty carefully because I mean, I don't know if crypto. We don't talk about it anymore, and I, I can't find. I'm going to try and find a way, Danny, to bring generative AI into this conversation. I'm not sure where DNO comes <laughs> in because that's the thing everybody wants to talk about, including me. But uh, you know, crypto would have been the thing we would have talked about a year ago, or even six months ago, for yeah. crying out loud, right? So if it comes to stay, there will be more, right? There, there has to be. Yeah, there, there has to be. Um, and I, and I think what you're seeing in crypto right now, that market is behaving much like the market for IPOs and SPACs did two years ago oh, okay. in the traditional DNO space. Yes. Um, you know, you used to be able to put together an IPO tower, you know, million dollar retention, you know, get a primary five or a primary 10 for someone. You know, they, they might charge a 10 rate online. And that would have been a big number two years ago. When DNO losses really started to run through and the market started to correct itself, you were seeing you know people putting up two and a half million excess of a five million retention for a million dollars, and that's wow. it was almost cost prohibitive. But you think about it: in order to attract someone to sit on your board, they're going to mandate that this coverage be in place yeah. because otherwise. You can go. Someone can go after their house. So yeah. this this coverage is almost forced placed by the people sitting on the boards. So you're getting the same thing with crypto. I mean, these are still people sitting on the boards of companies. Their personal assets could be at play. So they will buy this coverage. And how did the SPAC IPO story play out? I mean, probably looking at it a year or so out of it now. So did it? How the mark? How, how did the marketplace behave there? Because I remember hearing how tight it was. Yeah, it it was a very tight market and. I'll tell you, I was very concerned about two years ago. Okay. Um, where I sit as a reinsurer, basically what I do, I, I'm an aggregator of risk. I support company A, B, C, D. They could all be writing similar accounts. They could all be writing the same accounts. So with SPACs, my biggest concern was, well, I have someone who writes the private company. I have someone who writes the SPAC. Then I have someone who writes the DSPAC. Next thing you know, if there's a horrible lawsuit, could I potentially get hit on three separate policies yeah. that were written by three different companies yeah. that I supported? Um, you know, with the SPACs, it seems most of these are going to close up, return money to the investors. And I think as an industry, we're going to do very well on the SPACs. The D SPACs, you know, a lot of them are struggling. Do you define D SPAC and SPAC? Maybe go through the terminology here for a second. Uh, sure. SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. Uh, in its simplest form, what it is, a bunch of investors get together, they give money to someone, and it is their charge to go out and find a private company to buy. So you list yourself publicly. All you are doing is looking for an acquisition of a private company. 
once you find that private company, you acquire them. And then since you're a public company, that private company becomes a public company. It's a different way for someone to go public. Uh, the DSPAC is essentially what happens after the SPAC finds its target. So the way the insurance works, you would write a two-year policy for the SPAC. Once they found a target, that policy would go into runoff, and then you would buy a DSPAC policy for the go-forward company. Okay. And so you said that you would think it might turn out okay. I think the SPACs will turn out okay because the majority of them are just returning money to investors. So there's no losses. Hey, we went out. We tried to find someone. The economy turned. Here's your money back. And their claims made policies? And their claims made policies. So it's over, it's over. It's over, it's over. So the SPACs look pretty good. Um, the D SPACs do worry me a bit more because the companies that did find targets probably a year ago, because most haven't been finding targets as of late, but those companies that took private companies that were probably not ready to go public, whose financials just weren't as good as they should be. And you think about how many SPACs we have. We had about 300 SPACs at one point, all looking for targets, reality is you overpaid for the private company. Sure. There's, there's only yep. a finite amount of companies out there. And you want to find one. There was a bidding war on some of these. You had to overpay. And now those are typically trading well below what the acquiring value was. So I think you're going to see some litigation around the DSPACs. Right. So when you say they, they acquire the company at price X, and now the company is trading at X minus... 10% or 20%. Yeah. Or like I mean, most of these are trading well below. A lot of these are trading in the single digits. Right. Single digit dollars. Dollars. Okay. So that means if you go at $10. Right. A typical SPAC is t- right. A typical SPAC would be at $10. These companies are all trading around a dollar, $2. Oh, right. Oh, right. So investors are sitting on 80% losses. Ouch. Okay. Yes. So that's going to go somewhere. So that would hit the DSPAC DNO. That not would the hit SPAC the, DNO. Correct. There's been a number of cases where plaintiff attorneys have sued both the SPAC and DSPAC policies, but where the case law is very much leaning, it's the DSPACs that are going to be on the hook for those, not the SPACs. Interesting. And so what I wanted to play back here was kind of like the the story you know, of the time. So walking into this environment, we didn't know, you didn't know which way that was going to break. Because in principle, it could have gone either way, right? Because Very much so, yes. And that's why I said if you asked me this question two years ago, I would have told you I was scared to death of SPACs because I was, I, I, being cautious, I was concerned that I could potentially be getting hit on three separate policies. Yeah, and now it looks like it would be one. It looks like it would be the DSPAC policy. Right, and so one's the SPAC, one's the DSPAC. What's the third one? The DNO uh, the, for the, the, DNO for the private company that was bought. Ah, oh, I see. So it was like the parallel to the SPAC. Exactly. And joined in the DSPAC. Correct. Hmm. Uh, it's a really interesting case for like a, let's say insurance innovation here, right? Because you don't know in advance where the claim's going to go. As you say, we have a perfectly reasonable theory for aggregation there, and it turns now it's been resolved. And so now I imagine SPAC DNO is going to be cheaper. Uh, but there aren't any more SPACs really going out. But yeah. yes, SPAC DNO has become cheaper. Yeah. yeah, and that's more a function of the market as well. You know, we had we had a supply demand imbalance. Yeah. At one point uh, in the DNO market, especially for the SPAC, DSPAC IPO, just like we have for the crypto, which we were just talking about. Now we've had so much more capacity come into the DNO market as rates have improved that we're really starting to see a softening, especially on the public DNO. Do you, was there some way you could have foreseen the way this kind of the legal uh, uh, case law would have gone? Like, is there something looking back? Because, I mean, in retrospect, if you knew now what you knew then, or knew then what you do now, 
you would have written all this back and get your hands on. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair point. No, I, I don't think there was any. Not because it, it, it wasn't really foreseeable. I mean, maybe you could have gotten some lawyers to go out there and look at policy. But this this was a new this was new territory for us. We, we yeah. SPACs have been around for a long time, but you never had the absolute volume that we had about two years ago. Yeah. So there was very, very little litigation around them for us to even think about or reference before this happened. Mm-hmm. I, I get the feeling that cyber, to a degree, is gaining more certainty or less over time about, right? Because like, there's so much innovation in that, I guess. Yeah, I, I think cyber is... I think cyber has improved as a market tremendously over the past few years. And, you know, I think what the market really did a good job in cyber of, and I'm not even going to talk about rates or losses or anything like that, where I think the market really stepped up and did a great job, uh, we made the insureds better risks. Okay. If you were an insured, if you didn't have multi-factor authentication, if you had a bunch of open RDP ports, Two, three years ago, you still could have found insurance. Someone would have just charged you a bit more, told you, hey, you got these, you should probably address it. But you still got coverage. Now you weren't able to get coverage. And one of the things, talking to a lot of our clients that we see, they're working with their brokers. They're working with their insureds. They're doing scans you know, 60 days, 120 days before renewal saying, hey, we're concerned about this that you have. We're concerned about this. Mm-hmm. And what we've done as an industry we've made the underlying risk better. I mean, similar to if you go back 100 plus years ago, property insurance, well, for factories, we started saying, hey, if you want insurance, you need sprinklers, you need alarms, you need this, that. We finally, as an industry in the cyberspace, got to a point where we told the insurers, this is the bare minimum of what you need. And now the underlying risks, in my mind, are much better than where they were two years ago when ransomware was so prolific. That's amazing. And I have seen that too. The the requirements to gain insurance are very concrete and specific. Is there an equivalent in DNO? Not really, no. That's a, that's a great question. But yeah, no. I mean, everyone has a bit of a different appetite. I, I mean, look, for DNO, you need audit the financials, but every public company has audit the financials. I, yeah. I, you know, um, but. I've seen companies that are going concerns still able to buy DNO insurance. Uh, you know, people might just charge more, but you don't have that same level. And I guess with cyber, it's it, you know, the cyber loss is going to come from someone trying to hack you. So you you know, you, you can't foresee though on the DNO side. Well, I, I mean, Boeing, for instance, I go back to that. Well, they had a plane crash, but that turns into a security class action suit. As well, it's I guess it's just tougher on the DNO side. Yeah, because the operations are more diverse. Correct. Right. Uh, even though, even when you have a first party claim, a first party loss, the company like a, like a plane crashes, you're not going to be also an aviation insurer. Correct. <laughs> right? Or aviation engineer. I mean, right. Yeah. Um, any other lines of business where you think there might be room to impose these? Because uh, uh, ENO, how about that? Or maybe for specific. Like classes, like let's say lawyers, you know, or something, or yeah, lawyers, you know, is a I- interesting market. Um, you know, we've we've been in that market forty plus years here at Transray. It's tough. I mean, you look at especially in the, I'm talking about the larger law firms right now, and and you look at the scope of work they're doing, how complex it is, the dollar amounts involved in these cases. On the primary side, it's just been a really, really tough line of business for us. Once you get into the high access layers, 
it's performed much better. But on the primary side, just with how complex the work that they're doing, and like I said, the dollars involved, if, if you get a claim, it's going gonna, it's gonna to run you a fair amount of defense costs just to unravel what may have happened. <laughs> right, right. Much less be able to tell them in advance what's going to happen. <laughs> Correct. And you're dealing with lawyers fighting other lawyers. And, <laughs> you know, no one's going to want to settle that or admit any sort of wrongdoing or anything. So we find that that tends to spiral pretty quickly on right. the large law firm side. Right. Do you, do, you get the, do you think that the claims administration or claims adjustment process is harder for lawyers you know than other kinds of you you know just because all the lawyers everywhere is of that of course is it really <laughs> absolutely because <laughs> you know that and you know and in some cases they could be the best client to have a claim with because they know everything and in other cases they could be the worst because they always think that they're right yeah so it, it when you start to get down to settlements it, it, it does get tough and we we tend to see those cases linger on for a bit longer and run up bigger defense cost bills. Are, are, are the tough jurisdictions for lawyers that you know the same as for other clients? It seems to me like the same ones always come up. It's like South Florida. It's like, you know, New York or other places. Yeah, like I mean, e EPL, private company DNO. when you're getting into this, when you're talking about the large lawyers, most of these are operating multinationally. Okay. But when you're talking about the midsize to small, yeah, it, it, it's always the same jurisdictions that are coming up. California, New Jersey. Texas, they're the ones that are just always popping up as being more difficult jurisdictions. And and are they popping up? Is this is this in professional lines? Um, is it the same in say you know not your department but GL or the liability uh, like you know because I I one of the things that always surprised me was Florida is tough for property claims. There are hurricanes, but then you also have like a pretty nasty auto liability market there, which is kind of surprising. It's not obviously that, that the case that those two things would be linked. Is it the case in professional lines as well? Yeah, I think in professional lines, what you have, it's just where you would have more sympathetic juries, bigger awards on, okay. on the professional side. I, I don't know how linked it would be on the casualty side. But yeah, you bring up a great point about Florida. You have real issues with the hurricanes and, yeah. and how those are adjusted down there. But then you have a auto market that's very difficult as well but, yeah. so not is it the case in professional lines in florida florida it, it, it's I, I would call that on the yellow side okay. if we were doing a traffic light here green yellow red I, I would call that more yellow than red um on the professional side okay so we're actually running out of time danny this has been flying oh. by as a blast uh, i want to get i wanted to get a little bit to your sort of origin story of danny Ejnowski. How how did you get into this kind of business uh where are you from oh, okay so uh grew up in bayonne new jersey um i got into this uh went to college played basketball in college wasn't really sure what i was going to do i was an english lit and philosophy major not uh not really the best thing. <laughs> no, not really the best thing to get a job uh, in 2001 when the world was being taken over by technology back then as well. So I, I thought, you know, maybe I'll go to law school. But, um, you know, I started playing rugby when I moved home. And the guy who played rugby, one of them worked at Everest Re as a DNO underwriter. Another guy was a broker at Aon. And next thing you know, they got me an interview. And and I had my first job with Aon. I started in July 2001. Okay. Or rather, my first job with Everest, not Aon. Okay. Uh, and what were you doing? Uh, I was a facultative DNO, ENO underwriter. So I've been doing DNO, ENO 
my entire career. Was that by happenstance? Did you choose that in some way, or is that just the job opening? That, that was the up? job opening that came up, and totally that's what random. and that's what I got into. Totally random. Yeah, but you liked it. I loved it. It, it was a lot of fun, and and I still say this: what I like most about it is the people. Um, and I think that would be true of any line of business. What I like about our industry and reinsurance, insurance, it's a relationship business. I, I don't think that's ever going to change to any great extent. I have some of my best friends who are in this business. Uh, I've made tremendous friends and, I mean, you know, guy, people who were in my wedding party. I've met through this industry, and it's about the relationships. I, I come into work every day, and I'm like, I'm not sitting here running through spreadsheets. I mean, that's happening some days, but like, you know what? For the most part, I'm going to talk to my friends, yeah. and I'm going to enjoy it. So that, that's really what kept me in the industry. Great. Well, we'll close there. My guest today is Danny Hosnowski. Danny, thank you very much. Thank you.